Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a better perspective on the present and help us prepare for what might come next. This month, inspired by stories in our most recent World If supplement, we'll be asking, what would happen if solar geoengineering went rogue? You would have winners and losers, and in all likelihood you would have governments coming in and saying, absolutely not. And how would people react if Facebook shut down all of its services in Europe? I think the reaction would be nothing short of a massive natural disaster or a terrorist attack. But first, the Paris climate deal commits its signatories to cuts in climate-changing greenhouse gas emissions over the coming decades. But even if countries stick to their promises, and some of them may not, that may not be enough to avert catastrophe. Western Europe is bracing for this summer's second heat wave as forecasts. Millions bracing tonight for dangerous winds and rain during this community. That there's a heat wave gripping much of the country from Texas to the Great Lakes. Four people died in Maryland where the temperature hit a staggering 122. faced its worst floods in a decade. Heavy monsoon rains caused floods. Which could break decades old records as the temperature heads towards 50 degrees. If summer heat waves and winter floodings continue across Europe and America and the global south suffers worse droughts and more irregular monsoons, could some countries decide to try a technique called solar geoengineering to slow the warming of the planet? To discuss exactly what this is and what the political fallout from it being developed might be, I'm joined by Katrine Breyek, our environment editor, and Oliver Morton, our briefings and essays editor. Oliver, perhaps I could start with you. What exactly is solar geoengineering? Break it down into two parts. Geoengineering is deliberately interfering in the workings of the planet at a planetary level in order to try and achieve a specific aim. In solar geoengineering, the aim is to slow the rate of warming of the planet or even possibly to cool the planet. And the mode of operation is lowering the amount of sunshine coming into the system. So there are various ways you might do that. What are they? Well, you have to knock sunshine out before it hits the surface. Uh, Some of the first papers written about this involve big shields in space. Uh, Despite the uh, ingenuity of various space-based people, that still seems a ludicrously expensive idea to most. Then there's the idea of floating a layer of particles in the stratosphere, which has the advantage that we know that little particles float in the stratosphere because we see them doing it. And we know that when the number of little particles goes up after a volcanic eruption, the amount of sunshine at the surface goes down down and things get a bit cooler. So that's another possibility. The third one that's talked about widely is making the low clouds over parts of the ocean a little bit brighter so that they reflect sunlight back. Now, that's in some ways a particularly appealing idea because you only have to put basically a little bit more seawater in the sky. The thing that attracts people about the aerosols, little tiny particles in the stratosphere is not only that it's the sort of thing that you see happen after volcanoes, but it's also the sort of thing that climate models have a halfway decent chance of kind of vaguely getting their grips on. And because climate science is driven by climate modelers, that's the sort of geoengineering that gets talked about most. 
Okay, then. So, Katrina, let me come to you. So, you wrote a scenario for our annual supplement, The World If, where you imagined how the use of this very controversial technology might come about. So, what were the circumstances that you imagined? The scenario that we imagined was one in which a small number of countries, probably countries that are feeling the effects of climate change more than others, so we're looking at poor developing countries that are poorly adapted to coping with the consequences, um, feel like at an international level, action to reduce emissions is not happening fast enough. At the same time, they're suffering from the consequences more and more. And so they band together to sort of make a proposal for deploying a solar sunshade. Okay, now in your scenario, you imagine that they pick the second of Ollie's geoengineering options and they build a fleet of special planes to spew sulfur dioxide into the sky and create a layer of particles in the stratosphere like that produced by a volcano. So how many of these planes would they need? So initially it would be dozens of planes and you could ramp up to, say, on the order of 100 planes. They would each be carrying out multiple flights a day day. So uh, by year 10, for instance, you might have on the order of 70 aircraft making about 40,000 flights each year. And would those planes, I mean, I'm not sure you know, what the legality of this would be, but if some other countries objected to this, could they shoot them down? Would you have to fly the plane sort of over friendly countries? And would that work? You would theoretically have to fly them over a large number of countries. It, it, there's various scenarios modelled for this, but currently to get a sort of distributed sunshade, you need to be injecting just north and just south of the equator. I think it's about 15 degrees on either side. And so your coalition would have to include countries which span that width. And the other thing is that because of the number of flights, there's really no chance that this would go undetected. So all of those scenarios that get discussed about, you know, could you have a rogue individual even that would do this without anybody noticing that until kind of it was Bond too late. Villain scenario. The Bond villain scenario is yeah. extremely unlikely. Because right, people would spot it straight away. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think would be the consequences? In your scenario, they start doing this. What's the reaction to it? I think the reaction fairly quickly is objection on an international level and some kind of condemnation. We know that the effects would not be universally positive unless it were very, very calculated. And so in all likelihood, you would have winners and losers. And in all likelihood, you would have governments coming in and saying absolutely not. But the danger is that you cause flooding or you disrupt the monsoon or you affect agriculture in, in ways that are unpredictable or that privilege some countries over others. I think the real danger is that all climate variability then becomes discussed in terms of who is doing solar geoengineering. I think there's a tendency to start with the technology as though the technology is in some ways sort of like coming in from the outside. This all comes out of existing climate and more generally international relations politics. And so all this always already happens within the context of how nations feel about each other and how they feel about the climate. And so thinking about it in terms of, uh, and I'm, Lord knows I've been guilty of this myself, thinking of it in terms purely of lift weights and numbers, and indeed what the actual effects are. The actual effect is not something that's going to be relevant at all. The perceived effects are going to be absolutely everything. And unless you start off by saying this is a way of taking responsibility for climate events just as much as it is a way of trying to change the mean climate state, you're going to get an oversimplified view of the problem. 
Yeah, and that also adds another dimension to it, which is once you've started your geoengineering program, you have an effect on both regional and global climate, depending on how you're deploying it. And you've got these sort of two effects that are overlaying each other, right? Because you've got greenhouse gas emissions in the in the atmosphere that are warming the planet and affecting the climate on global scales. And then you've got the solar geoengineering, which is sort of countering that in some places and having all sorts of consequences, which frankly, at the minute, we don't fully understand or certainly don't understand in the sort of detail and subtlety that we need to. And so you're going to have some people who will, say, have differences in flood rates or differences in heat waves. And you won't know if that's a result of the geoengineering or if it's a result of the underlying climate change of the greenhouse gas emissions. And so the blame game becomes incredibly complex and frankly, fraught politically. And that changes everything. So who knows? And also in the scenario that Katrin outlines in the piece, if solar geoengineering becomes a fact on the ground or other fact in the sky, then that also changes things in the way that conversations happen because it means that there's another bargaining chip around. So some people worry very much about the discussion of solar geoengineering because the very idea of it will cause people to put less effort into reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Other people argue if you had little control over a group of people who were claiming to take control of your climate – then you would have a very strong incentive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get them out of your skies. So there's some argument. You certainly see this in sort of like focus group-like situations where when solar geoengineering is introduced into the discussion, people say, good God, they're really thinking about doing that? We must take this more seriously than we have been doing. So I don't think anyone quite knows what way it goes. I agree with Katrine that thinking that anything will of its nature go well in a climate discussion is, is optimistic. But we honestly don't know how messed up it would make things. Okay, finally, the big question then. Countries have signed up for Paris that we're supposed to be going to net zero by 2050 in Britain. Other countries are making similar pledges. That said, we're not brilliant at meeting our promises on climate. So how likely do you think it is that during the course of the 21st century, solar geoengineering will actually be implemented in some form? What percentage chance would you give it, Katrine? I'd say we're over 50-50, but I think it depends on how you define what form of solar geoengineering you're talking about. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tried it, whether it's at a level that would have a large regional effect or even a global effect, that I don't know. Yeah, what's your view, Ollie? I think that people will claim to have tried it. I think people may try it. And I think there's an outside possibility that it might be implemented broadly. But I think giving percentages, I don't know what my prior experience base is for that. Okay. You both think that there is a non-zero chance that this is something that will get tried or possibly even deployed on a large scale later this century. I'm way there with non-zero, Tom. I'm, I'm so there Excellent. with non-zero. <laughs> but the point is that this is not an alternative to cutting emissions because all this does is buy you more time at best. Never an alternative to cutting emissions. That everybody is clear on. Yeah, I think the way that greenhouse gases warm and the way that solar geoengineering cools are physically different processes. One's to do with infrared, one's to do with visible light. They spread out differently on the planet. At low levels of activity, most of that honestly comes out in the wash. But the higher the greenhouse gas level you try to suppress the changes due to with the higher level of particles in the atmosphere – pretty soon things get really quite nasty. So you absolutely don't want to... You, the idea that you could go up to a hugely 
greenhouse world with lots of geoengineering just completely untenable. And you keep having to ramp it up and up and up and up. Plus, of course, we haven't discussed this, but there's the fact that solar geoengineering does nothing for the other climate effects. So it does nothing for ocean acidification, for instance. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Katrina and Ollie. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, 30% of the world's population engage with Facebook and its other services, including Instagram and WhatsApp, every month. Economists reckon it may yield trillions of dollars worth of value for its users. Certainly, some people would find it very hard to live without it. But suppose Facebook, exasperated by the demands of European regulators, decided to withdraw all of its services from the region, where it has more than 307 million users. One person who's considered this provocative scenario is the Economist's correspondent Leo Morani, who wrote about it for our annual World If supplement. Leo, perhaps you could start by explaining the scenario that you considered. The picture I've painted is a slightly melodramatic one because, you know, what is speculative fiction without melodrama? But in this story, at around midnight European time, users across Europe suddenly notice that Facebook seems to be down. WhatsApp isn't connecting. Instagram is presenting just a blank screen. Why is that, they wonder? Is something wrong? And soon they discover that Facebook itself has voluntarily turned itself off. It's just basically had enough of being harangued by the European Commission, by data protection commissioners across up and down the land, you know, in every single country, by all of the negative press. And so in a fit, you might say, of sheer bloody mindedness, Mr. Zuckerberg says, enough is enough. You guys don't like it. We'll live without it. Okay, so what makes us think that, uh, you know, Facebook might be starting to get a bit annoyed with the demands of European regulators? As you've probably seen over the past several years, American publications, American policymakers have wondered whether Europeans are just jealous of Google and Facebook and their success, right? And so already we're beginning to see versions of this where Facebook is briefing American publications to sort of have this idea that Europe is overreaching. So as recently as uh, this year, in May, I think, the New York Times suggested things like EU rules could lead to, open quotes, accusations of censorship and potentially providing cover to some governments to stifle dissent, when really most of what these EU rules are doing is protecting consumers. Okay, so the the specific thing that Facebook seems to be annoyed about there is that the EU has been saying to the big internet companies, hey, when there's, you know, misinformation or hate speech or extremist content, you have to take it down within a certain number of hours. And they've been sort of gradually tightening the, the screws, haven't they? And the, the internet companies all started off by saying, oh, this is impossible. And then they said, all right, we can do it within 24 hours. And then the EU says, OK, now do it in 18 hours or, or Right, whatever. exactly. And, and for the companies, I mean, you know, you can see why they resist this sort of stuff, because it's a lot of responsibility. And the whole point of these businesses is that they're supposed to employ very few people and have very little responsibility and everything's supposed to be self-regulating and, you know, the good stuff will rise to the top. And as we all know, that's not how it actually works. OK, so is there a precedent for a big American tech firm withdrawing from a European market in this way? Google News, you may recall, before Facebook became the really bad guy, Google used to be the bad guy. And Google News was um, apparently responsible for destroying publications around the world. And in Spain, where, if I remember correctly, they wanted to impose some sort of digital tax or news tax or link tax Oh, or that's something. right. They said if you put our headlines on, on Google News, you're stealing our journalism. So exactly. Stop doing it. 
And so Google in the end said, you know what, look, this is too much hassle. And they just withdrew Google News from Spain, at which point, as you might imagine, traffic plummeted to Spanish websites and Spanish publications remonstrated and said, maybe this was a terrible idea. Maybe you should come back and I'm sure we can work something out. And Google was like, you know what, look, forget it. Okay, so this would be Facebook pulling out of the whole of Europe would be a a more dramatic example of that. Obviously, there would be quite big revenue implications here. Again, are there examples of internet giants pulling out of markets that actually, you know, hurt them revenue so the, the best example of this is several years ago, Google pulled out of China, citing pretty much what Facebook is complaining about in Europe, citing government interference, censorship. But the fact is that Google did, it actively hurt its bottom line by doing this. Google could be making a lot of money today in China if they had agreed to tow the party's line, which they did not. Right. So they wouldn't provide a censored service. And so they'd say, we'd rather just say no to the money. And that could be the sort of argument in your scenario that Facebook would say, these restrictions are too onerous. We know there's lots of people using it and we make lots of money from that, but actually we'll just do without the hassle. And also, I suppose, I get the feeling from your uh, your piece that Mark Zuckerberg wants to remind everyone just how indispensable Facebook is and you just try doing without our, our so services. That's exactly it. I think it's much more of the latter than the former because, the, uh, yes, Facebook can try and take the moral high ground and say, look, we don't want to provide censored services. We would rather provide nothing at all. But the fact is the European Union is not China. Much more likely, assuming such a scenario were actually to play out, it would be a matter of saying, look, you're giving us way too much trouble and it just may not be worth the effort. Now, you think we should be broken up or deleted or whatever? Well, live without us, why don't you? So what would the implications of Facebook pulling out of Europe actually be? Would this have an economic effect or would it just give everyone a lot more free time? I think it would be carnage, complete carnage. I think industries would stop, businesses would stop. It's remarkable the extent to which all of us rely on aspects of Facebook or Instagram, or especially WhatsApp, that we don't even think about. Where does this actually connect economically? Is this the, the use of, say, you know, the way that small businesses use Facebook and WhatsApp very often as their digital presence instead of having a website? Is that where you think the most damage would be done? I think that is probably where the most damage would be done, but I think it's easy to overlook that just individual citizens would be extremely annoyed about this and would be calling their MPs, calling MEPs and demanding that this stuff be brought back because it's, you know, it's easy to think ah, it's just people wasting time on the internet. But to begin with, entertainment is a big part of, um, you know, it's, it's a money spinner. It, is, it contributes taxes, it makes lots of money for people. And secondly, so much of advertising, marketing, etc. now happens online. And especially for, as you point out, especially for small businesses. So how do you think that would play out politically then? You've suddenly got everyone freaking out, saying we can't live without this, calling their MPs. You've got to strike a deal. You've got to compromise with, with Facebook. Do you think that would happen? I, I mean, you might accuse me of overstatement, but I think the reaction would be nothing short of a massive natural disaster or a terrorist attack. I imagine every head of state and head of government in Europe would be at their desks within an hour of this happening, trying to figure out how to fix it. Okay, well, food for thought for Mark Zuckerberg there and for the rest of us too. Leo, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.